Well, last week, Pastor Aaron talked about uh, a call for us as uh, followers of God, and the call went something like this. We need to be intentionally, spiritually present and engaged um, in the work that God is doing in the world around us. And then he went on to uh, give an associated quote with that that I thought was very insightful. Our capacity, our capacity is definitely not up to this calling. We just can't do it. And we especially can't do it uh, without what I'm going to talk about this morning. Um, Aaron closed out last week with a little to-do list. And part of that to-do list was uh, that we had to request the Holy Spirit's power to be active in our lives. That's what I'm going to talk on this morning. This is where the Apostle Paul takes us next in our 1 Corinthians uh, study. Everything else that Aaron talked about was really, really, really important. Uh, Do what you can. Oftentimes what God asks us to do is what we can. We can't do everything, but we can do something. Be a person of prayer. Um, re-engage if you're disengaged. And of course, relinquish a need for recognition. That stuff is all incredibly, incredibly important. But what I'm going to zoom in on this morning is the Holy Spirit's part in our engagement uh, to the world that we uh, live in. If we're going to really be intentionally engaged in what God is up to, it's foundational that we are Holy Spirit-filled, Holy Spirit-led followers of God. When I came to Jesus, I was 13 years old. And uh, my conversion was not a tame thing. It was interesting. I read God's Word. I wanted to find out what it was about. I, I remember I desperately wanted God to move in my life in a really real way. I wanted to see real things happen because I thought God is a real God. And I remember reading... James and coming to that scriptural portion that says um, that the person who doubts is double-minded and unstable and all he or she does. And I, I remember thinking, I don't want to be that person, God. I want to be consistent in you. I don't want to be double-minded or unstable in all that I do. And, and, and as we've been looking at 1 Corinthians, you know, Paul's been talking on this very topic matter. He keeps bringing us to this point that there's this clash between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And if we try to marry the two, if we take a little bit of the worldly wisdom and try to mix it in with the godly wisdom, that we're going to be double-minded and unstable in all that we do. We're going to experience the reality of James. But I have to admit this. Those first six years were terribly hard because I was trying to do it on my own. And then something happened when I was 19. I begin to discover the ministry of the person of the Holy Spirit. And I begin to actively ask the Holy Spirit to be poured out of my life. That he would live in me and do in me things I couldn't do in myself. That he would make the way of Jesus understandable to me. That he would uh, give me the heart of God towards people. And that changed me as it ought. If we're going to be spiritually present and engaged in our world we got to be filled with the Holy Spirit and led by the person of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to just expand on this piece of the to-do list from Aaron last week because that's where 1 Corinthians takes us now. So here's our introductory thought this morning. The Holy Spirit empowers. The Holy Spirit empowers. He empowers you to experience real-life change. He empowers you for effective engagement with the world. So listen for this truth, please. Just listen for this truth. 
as I read to you now from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. The first piece of this is just kind of introductory thoughts, and then we get into this idea behind uh, uh, these introductory thoughts. The idea behind these is that the Spirit makes it all possible. Listen for this as I read this morning. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. It cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So when we have the Holy Spirit in us, we're empowered. We get what God is about. You get discernment. I put it into this kind of big thought statement. What the Holy Spirit does in the follower is supernatural in nature. We're supposed to have a supernatural experience in God. It's supposed to be something we can't manufacture and do ourselves. It's supposed to be something beyond our capabilities, beyond our creation. The Holy Spirit's supposed to come into the follower, and we're supposed to have a supernatural experience. We're told several times in 1 Corinthians this morning that whether it be revelation from God or understanding the thoughts of God, the Spirit is behind these things. Now, when I talk on the Holy Spirit, it causes oftentimes some worry. Some who've had some experience with church, when the Holy Spirit's mentioned, they think, well, that means we lose control or strange things begin to happen in our midst, and I don't know if I'm up for that. Others think about the Holy Spirit, and they associate signs and wonders uh, with his ministry. Some are just afraid of the person of the Holy Spirit, so they ignore him entirely. What did Paul tell us this morning in, in 1 Corinthians? Let's just go to some clarity here on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What did Paul tell us? Here's what he told us. The Holy Spirit lives inside the follower, revealing God's plans. He reveals his plans to us. Making God's thoughts known and transforming and conforming us into Jesus. To look like Jesus. To be ones like Jesus. So the Holy Spirit reveals God's plans, reveals God's thoughts. He transforms us and conforms us so that we look like Jesus Christ. Now, of course, the Holy Spirit does other things like the signs and wonders, but we're going to stay in the context of 1 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 2 this morning. Um, you know, we often want God to do these miraculous, wonderful things, and I'll talk to very sincere people 
who will lament to me a little bit, why doesn't God move like he used to move? You know, when he did these powerful things in times gone by, uh, and then they'll say, I, I think I'm believing that he'll still do those things. And when they're making that kind of talk with me, what they're referencing is things like, you know, Elijah the prophet facing off the, the false prophets of Baal, and then Elijah calling upon God to, to supernaturally burn up the uh, offering that he had put on the altar after he had doused it with water several times. God sends fire from the, from, the, from the heavens and burns up the altar, and it's a marvelous victory uh, for Elijah, and it's a marvelous demonstration of God's power. People say, that's all we need. But get this, please hear this. The miraculous supernatural work that preoccupies God is the work of redemption and regeneration that takes place within each one of us. I'm going to say that again. The miraculous, supernatural work that preoccupies God, that he is just seemingly focused on, is the work of redemption and regeneration that takes place within each one of us. Let me draw out some of the thoughts here that Paul shared with us in 1 Corinthians for you. I always think in pictures, and I'm very visual. And so this is helpful for me just to kind of bring clarity to this teaching. It's just important to get this. So if a person has not yet received Jesus Christ by faith, the Holy Spirit's not living in them. This is what they look like then. They have a soul. That means mind, will, and emotions. It's eternal. We're eternal beings. That's the sole part of this person. They also have a body here. And that basically constitutes them as a person. They have a soul and a body, but there's no spirit of God at work within them. Such a one can't get the mind of God because they don't have the tools within them to understand God. Because that's the work of the Holy Spirit within us. So their life is governed by soul and body. This is what governs them. What they think and the bodily impulses that they experience. A lot of outside influences usually direct them. So there's a lot of outside here that probably will direct such a one. Um, now, we'll often hear well-intentioned people say, just listen to your heart. But if you don't have the regenerative power of God at work in you, the Bible says the heart's a deceptive device. It will lead us astray. And so if we listen to our hearts, but we don't have the Holy Spirit within us, our hearts will, will lead us astray. Now I'm going to draw up what's supposed to happen um, when, when you're born again. But before I do that, let me just talk a little bit on, 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 on this idea that within every human being, there's this God-shaped vacuum or hole that only can be filled by him. And this thought of having this God-shaped hole in the heart is often attributed to French mathematician and philosopher uh, Pascal. Uh, he said something along that lines, but he didn't say it precisely like that. But that's kind of the summary of what he said. But here's what he actually said. Let me read this to you. And he's talking about people without Jesus now. He said, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness? of which all that now remains is an empty print and trace, uh, a shadow of what was once there. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help. 
since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable uh, object, in other words, by God himself. So what has to happen for us to experience true life change is to receive Christ and then the person of the Holy Spirit lives in the center of our being. So a person who's been born again in Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit living in them. So you could just say the Holy Spirit here, or spirit, okay, is at the center of this person. They still have a soul, right? Mind, will, and emotions. And they, of course, at least for now, are housed in this thing we call a body. Now here is what happens in this person who has the Holy Spirit living in them. The Holy Spirit within us begins to reveal to us what? The mind of God, the thoughts of God, the the revelation of God. And so what happens is the Holy Spirit begins to, what we call, transform us. In other words, our mind, our will, and our emotions are brought into subject of the Holy, or in subjection to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's in us, and he begins to transform how we think, how our hearts feel, right? And direct our will. And he also does this other marvelous work. It's called conforms us. He just conforms us into the image of Jesus. And so outside influences aren't what direct us. Our bodily functions don't direct us. We're controlled from the inside out because the Holy Spirit is in us, conforming us and transforming us into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're this person, okay, if you're this person here, then you should begin to live entirely differently. You should begin to love the the Beatitudes of God. The Beatitudes of God are, are all these kingdom principles that should be in the heart of the follower of God. And, and the Holy Spirit will imprint the importance of these things into us. So, for instance, the Beatitudes begin with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What, what it means when it says you're poor in spirit is that you realize your own depravity, your own bent towards sin, your own shortcomings that you can't do following God on your own, that you're not an okay person. And, 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 and Jesus has blessed us such a person because theirs is the kingdom of heaven because the Holy Spirit will come in and he'll make you rich in the spirit of God. But there has to be this humility and acknowledgement, I can't do it myself. And as you go on in the Beatitudes, uh, another one says, blessed are the meek. Now, Meek is an interesting word because it means putting my strength under God's control. So if the Holy Spirit is living in me as a follower of Jesus Christ, what it means is that I will get to this place of saying my resources, my abilities, and my talent, and my time are under your Lordship, Jesus Christ. I am submitting my strength to you, and the Holy Spirit then begins to use you and your strengths as they're submitted uh, to him. Now, The other thing that should happen if you're this person is that the fruit of the Spirit should be readily noticeable. I call it it low-hanging fruit. It should be easily picked up by other people or picked by other people. And so in Galatians chapter 5, we're told what the fruit of the Spirit is. It's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. This fruit should be easily seen in the person that's filled with the Holy Spirit. So here's a critical perspective to get now after I share all this. 
The one without the Holy Spirit of God just cannot understand things that come from the Spirit because they're this person. They have a soul and they have a body. But they don't have the Holy Spirit. They can't pick up on the things of God. They can't discern them. It shouldn't surprise us. Now, what we can do by kind of getting this and understanding this is, is one of two things, and I think the first one is a little bit wrong. We can look at this person and say, oh, that explains why we have all the problem in the world. And all we do is point, point figures at people that don't have the Holy Spirit living in them. But what I want us to do is look at this person today. What are we to do who are filled with the Holy Spirit? How should that change how we do our Christianity? Because we can't change other people, but the Holy Spirit in us can change us, amen? And so this morning, I just want to focus on what does it mean that we're Holy Spirit, you know, anointed people of God? Um, let me begin by giving you an illustration that will help maybe uh, kind of flesh this out a little bit. This last week, Vicki and I traveled north to northwest North Dakota, nice little nine-hour drive up to the middle of nowhere, looking at these ones that are from North Dakota, and we wanted to see our grandson, Rowan. He's turning one year old. He's Abby's oldest little boy, and he turned one year old uh, this last weekend. So we went up to just enjoy that moment with Abby and her husband, Austin, and Rowan. Now, when I got up there, I realized, you know, Rowan's one year old. He's just starting to walk. He's the cutest kid ever. Um, I'm biased. But he's just, he stands up and he realizes, I am standing up. I can't do this. And he sits down. He stands up in the middle of the room. I said, you little bugger, you could just walk. And, and so I'm thinking, well, he's one year old. I don't expect him to be like me. He's a little bit younger than I am. Uh, he is afraid to death of vacuum cleaners. It's funny how scared he gets when the Roomba starts up or when the vacuum cleaner goes. He gets terrified, and he runs to somebody on his knees because he can't walk yet, so he crawls, pick me up, pick me up, pick me up, and he's all, he's all shook up about it. Well, Abby had this brilliant idea, and I thought it was a really good idea. Let's make Rowan a smash cake for his first birthday. Some of you who are young know that this is now a new thing. Those of us who are older have no idea what this is about, but they make a cake, and they put it on this little, you know, uh, height chair, and he's just supposed to rip that thing apart, and it's supposed to be hilarious, right? So she makes him a Mickey Mouse hat smash cake. I mean, it was beautiful. So they pull in Rowan. He's a skinny little guy, and he's just in his diaper because they're anticipating him just going crazy and smashing this cake all up. There's like about 18 adults around taking pictures. He was terrified of that cake. He just pushed it away, and he looked like, get me out of here. I'm not going to smash this cake. I don't, he touched it and goes, ugh. He didn't like the texture of it. He, I, I don't, he did not get the smash cake moment. So we all said, oh, that's okay. He's one. We love it on him. He's rolling. He's cute no matter what he does. And Abby even tried to do it with a cupcake. Well, I'll just rub a cupcake. And he tried to shake it off his hand. And he had nothing to do with that smash cake or the cupcake. It was pathetically disappointing because we weren't anticipating this big moment. But listen, here's what I'm trying to say this morning. I love Rowan. He's cute. I like hanging around him. He's a very engaging little boy for a one-year-old. And uh, he smiles a lot, and he's very interactive and social. I'm patient with him. He's one. I'm gentle with him. I mean, I'll throw him around in roughhouse, but if roughhousing means I throw him on top of me, right? And I fall down, and he thinks that's hilarious. But if I were to throw him down and fall on him, that would not be so hilarious. 
so I'm gentle with him. I, I am kind towards him. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very, I don't expect him to do much because he's grown. He's one year old. Now get this. Now get this. There's, there's a point to what I'm saying here. We look at something like this, and there's one of two ways we can use this kind of revelation. We can look at this group of people out here that don't have the Holy Spirit in them, and we can become very critical and judgmental of them. That's the wrong use of this understanding. Instead, we're supposed to ask, what shall I do with this revelation that I'm filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, we should treat the Romans of the world who don't have the Holy Spirit, who aren't as mature as us, in the Lord Jesus Christ, with what? Love, gentleness, patience, kindness, correct? They're not as cute as Rowan. That's the problem. Rowan is one cute little guy. The people we're running out there who don't have the Holy Spirit in them, these people sometimes can look kind of nasty. And they can be kind of mean-spirited. And it becomes a real temptation to be judgmental and critical of them. But what we have to do is let the Holy Spirit rule our hearts and treat them as the one in the know. See, the intended result that, that Paul is wanting us to get to is through the infilling Holy Spirit, you have the mind of Jesus, and Jesus loves sinners. So through the infilling person of the Holy Spirit, you have the mind of Jesus. At the end of our reading this morning, Paul quoted the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 13. You probably don't know that, but that's what he quoted when he said, who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him. And in Isaiah, uh, what is happening here in Isaiah 40 is that, that uh, the prophet is giving Israel some very comforting words. They're coming to the end of their captivity to Babylon. And Isaiah basically is saying, God is up to something great. You need to know who God is. And he says in verse 9 of Isaiah 40, basically, here is your God. And what he's telling the people is, I want you to know who God is. Because in Babylon, there's a God in every corner, and you're all confused. I want to introduce you. Here is your God. And he goes on then to explain what God looks like. So it was like if I was taking Matt here, and you didn't know Matt, and I said, here's Matt. And I begin to say, now, this is Matt. He, he, he's giving, he's loving, he's, and I begin to explain, this is what Matt looks like. This is who he is. That's what Isaiah does in chapter 40. And he begins in verse 13, the one that's quoted here in 1 Corinthians, he begins to say, this is who God is. Who has known the mind of the Lord? That he may instruct him. And what Isaiah is saying is, our God, the true God, is unique. He is above all these false gods of Babylon. No one instructs our God. No one knows the mind of our God. He is sovereign. He is in control. He is unique. He's overall. Well, then Paul takes that thought of Isaiah, and he pulls it right into 1 Corinthians that I read to you this morning, and he says, we know God. This is a wow moment. He's using this phenomenal scripture of Isaiah meant to bring comfort to the people of Israel about the uniqueness and the supremacy and the sovereignty of God. And he pulls that right into 1 Corinthians and he says, who has known the mind of God that he may instruct him? And he says, we have the mind of Jesus because we're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's like, wow, this unique, sovereign, in control God, this God over all, lives in you, 
and you know his mind. It's supposed to kind of blow our minds is what it's supposed to do because we have the mind of Jesus Christ. So this brings us to this final thought. So now what? So what do we do with all this? Here's my simple exhortation to all of you this morning. If you walk out of here and you just know a few more thoughts about the person of the Holy Spirit, that doesn't really do you any good. You have to step into this provision. You have to begin to walk in the unction and the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. And I've been choosing my words all throughout the morning super carefully. There's a lot of arguing that goes around this topic of how are we filled with the Holy Spirit? How does that all happen? Some say, well, when you're born again, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Some argue there's a second act of grace. You're, there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Some, like I said, are just plain afraid of the whole subject matter. I'm not going to talk on that this morning. Here's what I'm going to talk on. It is clear from Scripture like I read to you today and from the rest of the New Testament that you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, are to walk in the power and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Without a doubt, that's a teaching of the New Testament. So here's what I would say. Let's not argue about some of the methodology this morning or the hows. Let's instead step into the provision. Let's believe that God will work this way in our lives. God, I think, is calling us to step into this provision of the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus gives us a wonderful teaching. It's called the Lord's Prayer. We're going to recite that after communion this morning. Then he goes on. He continues the teaching of the Lord's Prayer by illustrating something very important for us, that we're to seek, knock, and be bold and persistent in asking of God. And so he talks about this guy going on a long journey, coming to his friend's house in the middle of the night, and he comes in, but the, 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 the host has no bread, nothing to feed this guy who's been on journey. So the host goes to another friend's house, it's in, the, it's in the nighttime, and he knocks on the door and he says, hey, listen, listen, I need to borrow some bread from you. And the guy in the house says, I'm asleep, the kids are asleep, don't get us up, you know. And the guy keeps knocking, he's persistent, and he's annoying, and finally the man in the house gets up, he says, okay, here's some bread, leave me alone. And the guy takes the bread back, uh, you know, to the one that was on journey to share a meal with him, and Jesus is saying, ask, knock, persist, be bold, and it'll be given to you. What will be given to you? Well, he reveals what will be given to you in the next couple of verses after that, that, that story. It goes on to say in Luke chapter 11, verses 11 through 12, listen to this. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the what? Holy Spirit to those who ask. That's what we're supposed to knock for. That's what we're supposed to seek. That's what we're supposed to be bold for. That's what we're supposed to be persistent in asking for. It's the filling of the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to step into this provision. God wants to give us this provision. It's incredibly important. Lately, I've been reading this book called Experiencing the Depth of Jesus Christ. It was written in the 1600s. It's a good little book. It's written by a gal named um, Guyon. She's French, so I suppose it's going on. I don't know how you say it. It's G 
U-Y-O-N. Anyway, it's a great little book. Um, Watchman Nee used this book. He translated it into Chinese. He used this book to train up his followers in that movement in China that was going on under him. Hudson Taylor used this book as one of the basic books of teaching in his ministry. John Wesley used the same book uh, by her as one of his teachings. It's a really good little book. She kind of reiterates what I'm getting after when you need to step into this provision of the Holy Spirit. You know, we're going to worship God in spirit and truth. True worship, true worship us will worship God in spirit and truth. And she says this, all true worship, she says this in the book, I just read it, all true worship is in spirit. To be in spirit, the soul needs to be annihilated. And what she's saying, that's older language, but what she's saying is you're, you're, you need to put yourself to death. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In spirit, she says, you enter into the purity of the spirit that prays within you, and you're drawn from your own soulish and human methods of prayer, and you pray then powerfully according to the spirit of God. Stepping into this provision is incredibly important is what I'm saying today. It was a fundamental taught to the early church folk that we have to step into the provision of the Holy Spirit so I've written a prayer out that I'm going to read to you. I hardly ever do this, but I'm going to read it as a prayer in the sacred moment. I'm asking God that we would step into this provision of the person of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to pray this with me. I want you to receive this. And, and whatever you do, I want you to walk out of here today saying, Holy Spirit, fill me, lead me, guide me. I'm going to seek you and your filling to empower my walk of faith in Jesus Christ. So would you bow your heads and please receive this from the Lord. Lord God, thank you for your love, for your son, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. Thank you for the provision of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, you said it was good that you returned to the Father because the Father would then send the Holy Spirit to live inside us, your followers. In accordance with Luke chapter 11, verse 13, blessed Holy Spirit, we welcome and invite you into our lives. As you promised in Acts 1, Lord, baptize us in the Holy Spirit. Immerse us completely. Douse us with the Holy Spirit. Fill our lives with the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Forgive us for any double-mindedness we've had because of adopting ways contrary to those of yours, God. Holy Spirit, minister to us the thoughts of God. May we truly have the mind of Jesus so that there is no unstable way in us. In your name, Jesus, and by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, we pray that our minds would be transformed and our lives conformed so that we think and we act and we live like you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, through you, we can be intentionally spiritually present and engaged in the world around us. We readily admit, God, that your calling in our lives does exceed our capacity. So, reliant on you, Holy Spirit, we will do what we can, leaving the results to you, being faithful people with no need of recognition. God, today we step into this provision of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for making all this possible. It's in your name and by your blood that we pray and claim this provision of the Holy Spirit today. Amen.